was willing to remain seated if they were going to sing another. I think that song makes apparent the difference between celebrating Christ and celebrating Christmas. There's a vast difference. And I think that the events of this weekend make apparent the difference. I mean, can you really just have the same thrill of buying another present when you've got news like this? Is it still the same to see Christmas lights when there's tragedy in a nation? And the answer for most of us is no. Even family gatherings have a new bittersweetness aspect involved in this. But that song captures the hope and the state of things. I'm just going to read those words again in case you were not paying attention. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom, buy back, purchase, captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. The fact of the matter is that believers do not belong to any nation and they are always in exile until they come to be with the king. And so, we mourn in lonely exile until the Son of God appears. O come, thou dayspring, a scriptural term for Jesus. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. That's the reason why we celebrate Christ. Because it's the only thing that puts to flight death's dark shadow in the resurrection. O come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to grow. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Fill all the world with heaven's peace. The fact of the matter is God's people are not united just because they want to be united. Unity is a side effect. It comes by being captured by Christ. And so is the desire of nations, when nations are continually at war within itself and at one another, to say we need someone to come to establish the unity that our heart craves for. And so I've changed gears in what I was preparing for today when Friday came. Um, Maybe by the Lord's will we'll look at that subject next Sunday. But I want us to turn in our Bibles, if you will, this morning to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. Because of the season that we're in and because of what's on our mind, um, how do we deal with this? And, and, and for those of you who are believers, you need to know how to deal with this and escape Ism is not the way to deal with it. Avoidance is not the way to deal with this. To know how believers deal with what happens helps us to give hope. It will become 
an opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ if you take it to Jesus Christ yourself personally. And so I'm going to bring your attention to this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. It is a prophecy that is relevant to Christmas, often quoted at Christmas time. Uh, it's part of Handel's Messiah. But I think also it gives us a word of hope in the day that we're in. And so the Hebrew version of this actually starts the chapter not with verse 1, but verse 2. And so I'm going to ask that we read verse 2. We're going to look at verses 2 through 7 and how it applies to our own hearts today. And I'm going to ask that we stand as we read this together, this being God's word. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest and they as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the days of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You may be seated. This passage in Isaiah 9 was written in a time period where there was a man by the name of King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a king over the Judean area, the southern portion. And this may mean nothing to you if you don't know biblical history. So let me just sum up a lot. Sin entered in when God created the world. When sin entered in by man's disobedience act, God gave a promise in Genesis 3.15 that he gave to woman, Eve, that from her seed would come someone who would undo what had been done, who would crush the head of the serpent. This is the one who the evil one, uh, the enemy of God, had used to tempt Eve. And that this serpent's head would be crushed, but it would be done with the bruising of the seed. There would be some kind of wounding that would take place. And so Eve had great hope. And when she named her first child, uh, she named him essentially what means, see a son. In other words, could this be the one? It was not. And death continued to reign. We have the flooding that occurred in Noah and that the world continued to rail against God. And then a new hope came in Noah's line. But we find that 
by a large nation. They rebelled against God in building a tower of Babel, and there God introduced the confusion of languages to say that you cannot achieve this peace apart from God. And so from the nations he chose one in Genesis chapter 12, a man by the name of Abram who had faith in God and trusted in God and said from this one would become uh, one who would be a blessing to the nations. Those who this person is blessed, uh, they will be blessed. And those who curse this one will be cursed. And we know that this line is, is the Jews. And from them would come Jacob. And from Jacob's line would be one who would be blessed. And from all the sons and tribes of Jacob would be one by the name of Judah. And God said to Judah through the prophecy of Jacob to Judah that from this line the scepter would never depart. There would be a a king who would reign forever uh, that would belong to Judah. But we didn't see that happen too soon. The nation of Israel representing all of mankind, railed against God as well. And then a innate king was brought in by the name of Saul. He disobeyed God until they came David. David would become uh, somewhat of the peak of the nation, David and his son Solomon. And God gave a promise to David that of his line that, that would be established forever. And it was given in prophecy that it would be of his line that Messiah would come that hearkened all the way back to the beginning in Genesis 3. But we find that after Solomon came a king of Rehoboam and the people of, of Israel rebelled against Rehoboam and Jeroboam came king of the northern part of Israel and Rehoboam maintained kingdom over Judah and the southern part and they were always separate. The kings of Israel and the nation of Israel uh, always rebelled against God, whereas in Judah, there was times of revival every once in a while where where the nation would be reconciled to God and the king would be a good king who would honor God. At the time of King Ahaz, it was not a time of revival. His grandfather Uzzah was a man who followed after the Lord, but at the end of his life rebelled against him. But King Ahaz, always from the beginning rebel against God. In fact, to the point where he would sell off the property and gold and jewelry that belonged to the temple and use it to purchase and build idols of Syria who conquered uh, some of the northern areas eventually. And would sell these things off. And even the Bible records that would sacrifice his own son in worship of these idols. And so this was the time period of King Ahaz. He only reigned for 16 years. And so he died fairly young. But it's in this time period where God uses Isaiah to give a message to the nation and specifically to the king Ahaz. In Isaiah chapter 7, we find this prophecy given of a virgin that's going to conceive, and and we find that there's probably a a short-term fulfillment of that prophecy in Ahaz's day as a sign, but later on becomes a fuller fulfillment of the Messiah. And it's in the same time where Isaiah 9 is found. And so he describes the land in verse 2. You need to understand this. It's important. The nation of Judah and all nations, they walk in darkness. We need to understand the context. Not only do they walk in darkness, they dwell in the land of deep darkness. It is true 
that not only in Judah's day, but still today, all nations still walk in darkness. We still walk in the valley of the shadow of death, and dark death shadows still reigns as the song brought to our attention. How do we explain life where, for some reason, young white men tend to shoot and kill? It's interesting to see those who believe in atheism, and I say believe in atheism because it's still a faith statement. It's interesting, how do they explain life? Does atheism give, atheism give a good picture of explanation of life? If it's survival of the fittest, then let's go on. Let's not mourn just some weak people died. There's not much grounds for love because it's a chemistry uh, that's done. And so it's just a chemical makeup of our DNA whereby we choose someone that uh, allows our species to continue on. So don't mourn when they die. Your DNA will just pick up someone else. There's not much foundation for love. Or perhaps maybe we, we believe in uh, that all mankind are, are really good. I mean, we're just really good at heart. Maybe we, it's just environment. We've had bad teachers. We watch too much TV. Uh, and, and so consequently, it's influenced us. But how do you explain what's happened in this past weekend when mankind is generally good? Well, just some bad seeds out there. Well, how do you explain on the other half of the world that they may read the headlines and may think, well, that's bad, and then they go on and it doesn't really impact them? How do you explain that? Whereas right now someone in some nation around the world is, is undoubtedly getting raped or getting killed in some form or fashion, and we just kind of go on with our day. How does a worldview that sees mankind as capably, as, as inherently good, how does it make sense of this world? It does not make sense when you view the world as just people are generally good, or even atheist. The Christian worldview, as Isaiah chapter 9 says, says simply, we walk in the land of darkness. That is the lot we have. We dwell in this land of deep, deep darkness. But the Christian worldview goes on and says, though that is the case, there is hope. There is redemption. Where things that normally are lost are brought back and made right. It is the hope of those of us who, who believe in a Messiah, who believe in a Christ, who redeems that, allows us to say, yes, we see bad things, we will go through bad things, but it's not the end of the story. And that's why verse 2 goes on and says, Though the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light Shine. I don't know exactly what Isaiah was talking about at that day and time, and I'm not sure that Isaiah knew what he was writing about. <laughs> Scripture goes on to say that what happened in the gospel are the things that angels and prophets longed to look into. I think perhaps maybe as Isaiah is penning this, uh, inspired by the Spirit of God, there's a little bit of him that says, Man, I wonder, uh, what, what's this like, this light shining? 
But then verses 3 through 5 talks about the effects of light shining. What is What would be the end effect of this? And so he, he, he pictures a scene of great joy. Verse 2, this is the context. We live in a dark world. Verse 3 through 5 says there will be a day and time when there will be effects of joy and light in this world. So what is it? Well, verse 3, you've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so it talks about the celebration that one day will occur in the nation, and I would add nations. Verse 5, he explains why. For the yoke of his burden, the staff uh, for his shoulder, the rod of the precious broken on the day of Midian. He's referring to Gideon, the story of Gideon, where Gideon just had a few hundred men, 300 men, and God used him through just 300 men to destroy Midian's army of thousands. And everyone knew it was of God. And so he's looking back to this day and saying, just like in, in Gideon's day, God will, through just what seems like small things, will make victory over the enemy. Verse 5, this is other image that has this idea of victory. For every boot, every boot of the tramping water, warrior in battle tumult. Every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, you need to understand, there is presently a battle that continues to rage between God and the one who hates God. And it is continuing on, but what Isaiah is saying is that there will be a day and time when the battle will cease. The, the, the boots that are trampling in the battlefields will no longer be needed. Those garments that are, are uh, ensnared with the blood around it uh, of, of battle armor will be no longer needed because there's victory, there's a ceasing of war that will take place. And he's not talking about just uh, um, Judah and a battle with Syria and Israel. Is there will be a day and time where the source of battles will end. You know, what's the source of war? Did you know the, the Bible tells you where all war comes from? In the book of James. It says, where do these wars and rumors come from? Do they not come from your own desires? Do you understand that national conflict is just a, a magnification of the warfare that each one of us deals with in our own life? The battle of desires, of pride, of insecurity, of saying, I've got to find my lot in life, and doing that apart from God. That is a constant battle that we will deal with, and it just plays out because each one of us is conflicted. And when you have a nation of conflicted souls, guess what you have? Conflicted nations. And so what's being said here is that warfare will end, not just among nations, but there will be a day and time when warfare will end within our own hearts. I was uh, reading a little bit of history. I like history, um, especially uh, American history. But I was reading about 1865. 1865 in April of that year, the Northern Virginia Army of the, of, uh, the Confederate States was on a run. And it was a constant battle as they were running away, fleeing uh, Grant's troops. And then a series of letters initiated by General Grant of the United States Army began between him and Robert E. Lee. 
It climaxed in a house near in Appomattox Courthouse on April 9th. And there, General Lee signed surrender. And he walked out in his Confederate uniform and all the niceties of, of a very sharp-dressed man, six-foot-tall, silver hair, and his dignity of going on out to his horse. General Grant came out with mud-spattered boots, open coat, five-foot-eight, all dark hair. But everyone knew that something significant happened, and they saluted each other. Three days later, the armies met together, and by a witness, General Chamberlain, the word went out. There was to, a, to be a mutual salutation of farewell. At a distance of possibly 12 feet from our line, the Confederates halted and turned face toward us. Their lines were formed with the greatest care with every officer in his appointed position and thereupon the formality of surrender. Bayonets were affixed to muskets. Arms stacked and cartridge boxes unslung and hung upon the stacks. Then slowly and with a reluctance that was appealingly pathetic, the torn and tattered battle flags were either leaned against the stacks or laid upon the ground. The emotion of the conquered soldier was really sad to witness. Some of the men who had carried and followed these ragged standards through the four long years of, stri of strife rushed, regardless of all the discipline from the ranks, bent about their old flags and pressed them to their lips with burning tears. And it can well be imagined, too, that there was no lack of emotion on our side. But the Union men were held steady in their lines without the least show of demonstration by word or mo by motion. There was, though, a twitching of the muscles of their faces, and be it said, their battle-bronzed cheeks were not altogether dry. Our men felt the import of the occasion and realized fully how they would have been affected in defeat and surrender had been their lot after such a fearful struggle. Nearly an entire day was necessary for that vast parade to pass. About 27,000 stands of arms were laid down. With something like a hundred battle flags, cartridges were destroyed, and the arms loaded on cars and sent off to Wilmington. Every token of armed hostility was laid aside by the defeated men. And thus ended the bloodiest war of America. Tears of joy are tears of sadness. Friends, that battle is nothing in comparison to the end where it is prophesied right here in this passage that there will be a day and time when every vestige of opposition against God will be burned. There will be no more need for opposition against God. And there will not be tears that we, we lay down with opposition to God. But instead, there will be with hallelujahs, praise to the Lamb who was slain since before the foundation of the world, that there will be no more battle with the one who is truly worthy. And I'm just going to say that all that's happened this weekend, all that's happening around the world, is just vestiges, is just remnants. It is examples of a spirit that is anti-God, that leads itself alone with violence in our hearts. And we will strive to get recognition whatever way we can. 
be it through the destruction of others or not. When Jesus says that life is found in the losing of it and surrendering it to God. And so I read this passage, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle till when every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, to understand, to say there is no more need. Why? Why is it that every boot will be destroyed, every uh, blood-soaked garment, every vestige of warfare against God will be put to flame? What is it? What is the, the cause of this, this victory? What's the next verse say? Verse 6. Here's how you know when the battle is turning. Here's how you know when surrender is happening. For those, for those it was letters from, from Lee to Grant and then arrival meeting together that he knew surrender was coming. Here's how we know surrender is coming. When we see a child born. Let me read to you in Malachi. The last chapter of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, there is no... Uh, rebellion coming up after this. It is a total annihilation, a total victory. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healings in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will return the hearts of the fathers to their children and their hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Period. And for those who were Jews, they heard not a word from God for 400 years. The last word, there's going to be a day coming. There's going to be a day coming of great flame. But before that time comes, there will be a spirit of Elijah that comes. There will be a forerunner that comes. And for 400 years, nothing. They, they saw Alexander the Great come in and conquer over their land. They saw their temple annihilated, or temple uh, defiled in such gross ways. They saw uh, the, the overflow of Rome over them. They saw the Maccabean revolt, of which the days of Hanukkah uh, have such note. They saw all these things, but they had not a word from God. Then a baby cries. Done. Such a way, with preamble of angelic choruses, done with folks coming from far off lands to worship the king of the Jews, done in such a way where Herod, who had the title of kings of Jews, was greatly concerned. And babies die in Bethlehem. Mass murder also accompanied the first Christmas. 
And it was for mass murder that Jesus came. It was for the hatred of people's hearts that Jesus came. It was for the sin, the pride within us that rails against God in opposition to Him that Jesus Christ came. It's why it's come. And so let's see this one who's born. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Son of what? Son of God. The son of David. It's the one prophesied. The son in Genesis 3.15. The son, the seed that would come, that would crush the serpent's head. A son will come. Through whom all the nations will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. I'm not sure Ahaz would have welcomed that. I'm not sure most governments do. But we live in a day and time where people are starting to rail and say, we've had enough of our government just saying something, crying a few tears, praying some prayers. Let our government do something. This must not continue. We've got to do something. And we hear that over and over, but I ask the question, what on earth can government do? How can government take out the hatred of people's hearts? Government cannot do. It can discipline. It can bring consequences. It can deter. But it cannot change people's hearts. During the reports of China, they have slaughters in schools also done with knives. I thought, well, what do we do? We take the guns, then we take the knives. The problem is our heart. And that's why Genesis 9-6 is so important. The government shall be upon his shoulder. This child, this son. We've seen the beginnings of this in Christmas, but there is more to come. The story is not yet finished when the government will be placed upon his shoulder. This is given to us in Philippians chapter 2 that because of the humility of Christ, because of the cross, that God the Father says to God the Son, every knee bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It's going to happen. And then notice the names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. I think these kind of go hand in hand. The wonder of a counselor. Literally. He shall be called the wonder of a counselor, the Mighty God. Amazing. Isaiah should say that. Strict monotheist. But he's referring to one who's going to be born and calls a mighty God. How can that be for a good Jew to say? Because he's led by the Spirit of God, he is writing about things he does not yet understand. And the incarnation of God becoming flesh. When he says mighty God, he means exactly mighty God. If you compare that in the next chapter, chapter 10, verse 21, he says... A remnant will turn to the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. He uses that same phrase referring to the God, Yahweh God, the one who is. Our God is one. 
But yet he says that this one to come is called Mighty God. Wonder of a counselor, Mighty God. The counsel of God is above and beyond us. Simply put, why do things happen like they did on Friday in Connecticut? I do not know. But I do know that God is a wonder of a counselor. That Jesus is a wonder of a counselor. That He takes things that seems at face value so filled with hate, but the power of God is such that He takes hateful decisions of mankind, takes the attacks of the very enemy Himself, and takes it and by His power applies His love and makes it something of which we praise God for. I don't know how He does that. Because he's a wonder of a counselor. Faith is to say, I don't know why, but I do know the end. And I look to the end. And I hold on hope to the end. There are many who would say at this time, if God is really in charge of things like this and this happens, then I don't want any part of him. But let me ask you, where does that leave you? If you want no part of a God who's in control, who is a wonder of a counselor, a God who's a mighty God who has the power, that speaks of the power to work in things like this, and a wonder of a counselor to make it work in ways that actually bring love and goodness and righteousness. If you don't believe in that, where does that leave you? And I would beg to say that it leaves you in some of the first world views I brought out of atheism. Or you have some selfish or uh, humanistic perspective that it's all about mankind. But that neither makes reconciliation with what's happened. Whether instead to say a wonder of a counselor, a mighty God, who can take things like this and make something beautiful out of it. And then everlasting Father, Prince of Peace... A, a father of eternity. This one, interesting enough, who is going to be born is also the father of eternity. How do you do that? How can the father of eternity be born? Isn't by definition that you don't have a beginning or end? But yet that's exactly what happens in the incarnation. Eternity comes into time in Jesus Christ. What I love is that we are given not just a father, an everlasting father, but consider who Jesus is. He's come perfected through suffering in Hebrews 2.10. He is hated by the proud in John chapter 7, verse 7. He is demonized by the strong in his day, according to Matthew 9.34. Jesus is willingly poor. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, according to Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is planning to be crushed. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, he is despised and rejected, ready to be wounded, from the same verse. He's submissive like a lamb, led to the slaughter. He's enduring anguish in Isaiah 53, 11. He's poured out in death in Isaiah 53, 12. And he's risen to help in Romans 14, verse 7 through 9. Because God knows that what I need is not just a Savior. I need a suffering Savior. I need someone who isn't just eternal, but also knows death. And he represents us. I needed a human to represent me, but I need someone more than a human to save me. 
And so a child is born who's also called the Father of Eternity, the Mighty God, the Prince of Peace. Interesting, he's called Prince of Peace. The angels declare peace unto those who are men of goodwill. But when Jesus came, he said, Think not that I came to bring peace. Oh, wait a second. <laughs> I thought your scripture said that you were going to bring peace, but Jesus said, Think not that I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. And that a father will be against a son, a daughter against a mother, a brothers against brothers. Why? Because Jesus lays in time as a historical event and you must do something with him and Either of two options, either you accept him as Lord and King and changes your view of everything in eternity, or you reject him as King, maybe acknowledge some goodness of some port, but you are always opposed to Jesus as Messiah and consequently on a different page. Great civil war is not between the North and the South, but between Christ and those against Christ. And it will come to a head. But he'll be the Prince of Peace because he will bring the final lasting peace. I was reading a, a paper talking about uh, 30 years and uh, futurists were talking about the next 30 years and what it would be. One of the things they said was that the Pax Americana would be ended within the next 30 years. I didn't know there was such a term as Pax Americana. I thought that was kind of cool. Um, following after Pax Romana of... Uh, the great Roman military might that, uh, so consequently, there weren't any world wars, but they said the Pax Americana that began in 1945 at the close of World War II and America's dominant position there. America loses its dominance. No longer the world power, a world power, but not the world power according to Futurist. But notice what we have here, this Prince of Peace in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. <laughs> there is no diminishing. What has begun 2,000 years ago with Jesus was a seed. A kingdom of God is just like a seed, a little leaven that is spreading throughout in the hearts of us and the hearts of the world. And there will be accumulation at one point when it will be evident because the victory has been wrought, Jesus Christ has come to claim the title that has been given to him by the Father. And the, the, the peace of Christ is not going to diminish because Christ's strength never diminishes as America's strength has diminished. That's never going to happen. It's just going to increase because time is making it more and more evident that it all belongs to him. And there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it. In other words, Jesus is, is the fulfillment of the prophecy all the way back to David. Done 4,000 years before Jesus. Isaiah's prophecy is done here uh, somewhere between six to 700 years before Jesus. Malachi ends 400 years before Jesus. And Jesus now has come on the throne of David. And what will he do on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore? You know what I love about the justice of God? God knows the motive of heart. We're sitting here wondering, what on earth was the motive of this young man? And it sounds like he's not going to reveal it or hadn't revealed it, just 
to create that sense of unease. But God knows the heart. He knows every heart here. He knows your motive. He knows whether you're here playing games, just trying to make a good impression, or He knows whether you're here seeking the Lord. He knows whether you are a spy, acting like God's, but your heart doesn't belong to Him. And He knows those of us who belong to God, despite what other people may say. He establishes and holds with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The jealousy of the Lord of hosts will do this. Maybe This may be a reference to the Spirit of God who's at work. But here's the thought. God desires greatly all nations to worship Him. God desires greatly your heart to be in submission to Him and worship the goodness of who He is. He desires greatly. He wants nothing to compete. And so the zeal, the jealousy of the Lord will accomplish this. In our nation, when we're hurting and we're mourning because of what's going on, the jealousy of the Lord is at work. We look at this thing and and we look at Friday and we see, God, how could this be on your calendar? Did you know this was going to happen? And I would say from what the Word of God says, He knows all things that are going to happen, including the future decisions of His creations. He knows that Friday was on His calendar. And we look at that and think, God, how can your calendar stand? How can you be these things when you have a day like that on your calendar? And here's the reason why. It's because Friday isn't the only day on His calendar. There is another day on his calendar and which all things are working toward. And here's, here's what he says. Here's how you know you're getting close to that day on the calendar. When God's victory is won, here's how you know. Here's your little, your little reminder that pops up on your screen. Here's the, the, fing, the ring around your finger, the, the marking on your hand to let you know this day is coming. When a son is born. When a son is born. Who's called everlasting father. The prince of peace. The mighty God. The wonder of a counselor. When that happens, you know that day is drawing near. Don't let God be defined by Friday. Let God be defined on the nativity on the cross, on the resurrection, and on the day that is yet to come. And that's our hope. My question is, which side are you on? You say, well, pastor, I'm not killing anybody. I don't have any plans to do that. Are you dominated by hate in your heart? You say, well, I know some folks that are like that. Are you dominated by pride in your heart? You're always trying to make an impression on God and someone else? That is evidence that you're not submitting to God. Are you trying to diminish the sin in your life? Trying to cover up the sin? You don't want to, let's not talk about that. Or do you confess that before God and hold on to God's mercy? That gives evidence on whether you're submitting to God or are you still trying to fight against Him. There is a sure end to this. 
You have a choice today on which side you're on. Let's pray.